0: You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us tonight as we open the scriptures together, as we worship together, and as we eat together. We're going to eat tonight. So um, we eat uh, food together once a month after the service. There's a number of reasons why. First off, people got to eat. Right, so we're going to eat together because we got to have supper. And there's always that dilemma: Do I eat supper before church? Do I eat supper after church? Do I eat supper before and after church? Um, we are going. <laughs> got some amens in the crowd. Uh, we are going to have supper together after the service. It's also a great chance to get to know one another. It's also as a uh, it's a picture of the kingdom as people from different tribes, tongues and peoples and walks of life and ages come together and share a meal together. One of our community groups at our North Liberty congregation has generously provided the food for us tonight and will be serving us tonight. Yes, thank you to them. Some wonderful folks with some wonderful food. Um, So as soon as the service is over, we will transform this room into a place where you can eat. We'll bring out some round tables. Um, If you could help us out by tearing down this far section of chairs so we can get in line for the food, we'll come right through the line, get food, grab a seat at a round table. If you need to take your food and run, we have some to-go containers, and you can take it back with you after church. But we would love for you to stick around and meet someone here tonight. Before we jump into the text, I have a little bit uh, longer announcement to give you, so um, get comfortable. Uh, You can also pull out your Bibles. We are gonna cover Genesis five through eight. We're gonna read most of it together. Uh, Wanna make sure that we know the Noah story, not just from our children's Bible, but from the Bible Bible. Uh, So we're gonna do that in just a minute so you can go ahead and turn there. The scripture's not gonna be up on the screen. We're gonna look at it together. So go ahead and turn or click over uh, to Genesis five through eight. But before we jump into the text, I have a little bit longer announcement uh, tonight, but wanted to do it on the front end here so we can end with the sermon and some prayer and then go right into our eating time. Uh, Wanted to let you all know that in spring of 2023, uh, I am going to be taking a sabbatical where I take 12 weeks off um, from the ministry work that I do, but also from worshiping here at Grace Downtown. Uh, There's a number of purposes why. First off, uh, a couple of years ago, our elders um, put some plans in place to provide sabbaticals for elders, and one was offered to me um, as Brooks took one uh, last winter, uh, one was offered to me as well. And my wife and I went through some sabbatical training and put together a proposal for what a sabbatical might look like for us. And so um, we submitted that to the elders and they graciously offered us a a 12-week sabbatical. So um, what that will look like is uh, 12 weeks of me not having office hours or going to meetings. Um, And also we'll take a break from our community group that we uh, co-lead. It will also look like nine weeks where we are not worshiping here at Grace Downtown, but we're worshiping at some other fine gospel teaching churches here in Iowa City. I will also take nine weeks off from preaching here downtown, so you will hear from a little bit more from Josh and Brooks than you're used to. You'll hear from Andrew a couple times, and you'll hear from one of our elders in training in North Liberty, Zach, as well. So that's how some of the preaching will be covered. The purpose of this sabbatical is really rest And serving family. Um, I honestly don't feel like I need a break from my ministry role. I love 75 to 80% of what I do here. The other 20%, I ask Bo to do, and he graciously does it for me. Um, So he'll keep doing those things. Um, But I don't need a break from all of you. You guys are so easy and wonderful to serve. Um, As we're going through and doing these member meetings, it has just been such a joy and so much fun to sit down with a number of you and just talk to you and hear about your life. It's been great to see people come back from Christmas break. So I don't need a break from all of you. I don't feel like I need a break from preaching. I love it. It's so much fun. It really energizes me. I love worshiping with all of you. Uh, I love coaching community groups. I love attending our community group and co-leading our community group. But I've also been in ministry for 23 years and planned a service every week, sometimes two services, for 23 years. And so a break is probably a good idea. Um, And I also want to learn to rest in my identity in Christ and not just what I do for him. And a sabbatical will help me to do that. Um, And so I really want to focus on what does rest look like and how can I rest well even as I come back. The other purpose is to serve my family. Um, Well, this will free me up to really focus in on my wife and kids. Uh, My kids are are busy. They're all in school and sports and music and all the things. Um, And I look forward to being able to intentionally serve them. Um, I love cooking and baking. I can't wait to cook and bake more for the family um, and get to take them to school every day, pick them up from school every day, and just really be there to serve my family over this time. So um, that is coming up. It will start the day after Easter. So I will preach on Easter. Uh, That next day, you will not see me for nine weeks, um, and I'll have 12 weeks off total. Um, I'll be off and you won't see the Blackleys till the end of June, and then we will be back in July. So wanted to let you know about that. We'll keep giving you details as it gets closer, reminding you that it's coming and things like that. Uh, The goal is that you wouldn't even notice that I'm gone. So things will keep running smoothly while I'm gone, I assure you. And Joe and Jeff will be here as elders at the downtown church, and uh, they will be there in a pastoral capacity if you should ever need or want anything. So, um, and if any other problems come up, you know where to find Bo. So, I wanted to let you all know about that. So, into the text. We are going through this series in the Old Testament because we are learning what it looks like to be God's people. We think that it's valuable to see God's people because we could learn something about ourselves, but more importantly, we learn about our covenant-keeping God as we go through the Old Testament. We're looking at the first two books of the Bible during this semester and we're looking at our spiritual family, our spiritual heritage. As we do that, we see what we see in our biological family. If we look in our biological family, whether it's our folks, our grandparents, or even back a few generations, if we are honest with ourselves, we're happy with some of the things we have received and we're not happy with some of the other things we have received from them through genetics. Our spiritual family is the same. We see faithfulness and we see courage and we see lots of great things from the men and women of the Old Testament. But we also see some of the same things that we see in ourselves. It helps us to see that because we see our covenant keeping God. And we see the promises and the mercy of God poured out on his people. Tonight, tonight I want us to ask the question, where does hope Come from. We sang this song, Living Hope. We went through a series this fall that talked about how Jesus is our living hope. Where does hope come from? Not just for the world, but where does hope come from for you? The fact of the matter is, we place our hope in a lot of things. We place our hope in food to satisfy us. We place our hope in the next trip, vacation, time off of work, or school. We put our hope in potentially something that may entertain us. We can't wait to see a movie. We can't wait to play a new video game or watch a show. And it can disappoint us. We put our hope in a relationship. We put our hope even in good blessings that God has given us, but we put all of our hope in them from time to time. We also put our hope in saviors. And things we hope will save us. This is the great story arc of every story you've ever read or watched on TV or in a movie. It's the classic hero's journey, right? It's the hero's journey, the hero's quest. And whether it's a romantic comedy, it's a fantasy movie, a sci-fi, futuristic, historical fiction, whatever it is, there is a hero and we start to put our faith in that hero and we watch their journey. The people of the Old Testament looked to heroes, they looked to deliver them, and hoped that they would fulfill the promises of God with the things that they did. Men and women who showed promise in the family of God only to disappoint those that they hoped would save them. We see a hope like that put um, in God's people at the end of Genesis chapter 4. So we'll start there, the end of Genesis 4, then we'll transition into our scriptures for tonight. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. We meet Seth. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. We talked a little bit more about that last week. To Seth, also a son was born, and he was called Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Great. A new hope, a new deliverer, a new savior, someone who is calling on the name of the Lord. Cain and Abel, we heard the story last week. You can dig into Genesis 4 if you want to see that story. The first brothers, Cain kills Abel, his brother, out of jealousy, out of envy out of rage out of letting sin devour him so they have another brother named seth and seth and his family start calling on the name of the lord a new hope is presented a new offspring is presented that can carry on the promises of god as we turn to chapter 5 we see one of these chapters in the bible that we often skip because there's a lot of numbers but A few verses here that will give us the sense of what Genesis 5 is talking about. Look with me at Genesis 5, verses 4 and 5. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 5. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. The point of Genesis 5, verses 1 through 28, is people were living a very long time. That's what we got going on here verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech names his son Noah because the name Noah means comfort and rest. Lamech was placing hope in Noah, his offspring, to bring his people comfort and rest. This word comfort is only used in this form in one other place in scripture. And it's in Isaiah 40 verse 1 where it says, "Comfort, Yes, comfort to my people Israel. This word comfort is only used in that context of the Lord providing comfort to his people. Lamech here is saying Noah will bring a comfort to his people. There's a new hope placed in Noah. The question is, why does Lamech need this hope? Why do people need this hope in the time of Lamech and Noah? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them and sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown what is going on here this is one of those old testament passages where we read it and we either just keep reading so we don't have to figure out what's going on or we obsessively can't get past these four verses churches have done the same preachers have done the same bible studies have done the same commentaries have done the same. They either hyper-focus on this and spend the next 45 pages trying to figure out who the Nephilim are, or they're like, we don't know what that is, and then they keep going. We're going to do a little bit of both. Um, So what we have going on here in Genesis 3 and 4, and then 5 through 8, and then 9 through 11, we see two things going on. We see the covenant and the promise of God— and him commissioning his people and reconfirming his commitment to them, and we see them sinning, going the way they want to go in their own flesh, trying to be autonomous from God, and really polluting and corrupting the earth as they go about doing it. So we're breaking up these three weeks, and we're going chapter by chapter, but tonight we're going to focus here on God's promise amidst some of this corruption and sin that's going on, and next week we're going to talk about the nature of sin. And how we see it in these passages. So we're going to go a little bit more into what I think Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is talking about. But here's a little sneak peek as it relates to what we're talking about here tonight. C.S. Lewis says that most men and women are decent folks. And that if you have to be a roommate with them or if you have to be married to them for a little bit of time, you can probably survive. But he also says that there are proclivities and tendencies about each of us that if we had to live with them forever, we would drive us crazy and everyone else crazy and create for ourselves a living hell. So he says, yes, there's probably fire and brimstone as part as hell and there's a literal hell and a literal place and literal fire and a literal devil. But he says it is equally terrible how mankind would destroy itself if given enough time. That's some of what we see going on in Genesis 5 and 6 6 verses 1 through 4. We see mankind living for centuries, hundreds of years. And chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 is painting a picture for us of absolute corruption. Heaven and earth being polluted even possibly the spiritual realm, interacting with the physical realm and bringing about more corruption from it. We'll hit on this more next week and point to some of what the author is doing here, what God is trying to tell us about the nature of sin from these four verses. But we see in chapter five, people living for all these centuries. We see this sin and corruption, these Beings and people stepping outside of God's plan for them. And God says, I'm going to limit man's life to 120 years. I am going to, out of my grace, limit the corruption of the earth by making it so that men and women do not live as long. Some of what is going on here, like I said, we'll cover more next week. So God's response, the verses that we just heard, read by Maggie. Verses five through seven. the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Skip down to verse 11 of Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here we are told that every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. It is hard for us to imagine what this is actually like. We think we know what this is like because we just kind of gloss over and say, yeah, people were really bad, or people were really wicked. And so we think about it like times in history where there was lots of violence, lots of corruption. We can think of governments or countries that have had corruption over centuries even. There's times and places, there's Places we can look to geographically and say there's lots of evil in that place. Or there's lots of violence in that place. There's lots of corruption in that place. That's what we think of when we read these words. That's not what this is talking about. All of us know what it's like to have evil, corrupt, sinful thoughts in our mind. A lustful thought, a violent thought, an envious thought, a prideful thought that is just awful. That is just evil. But by the grace of God and the teaching of scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, the biblical community, we fight against those things. This is talking about every intention of man's heart being continually evil all the time. And not only that, but they're living for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mankind is capable of great evil and great chaos. When corrupt, awful leaders are put into power and they use that power to change things at their own will, they wreak havoc even when it's for four years or 10 years or 30 years. Imagine 800 years of corruption of homes and marriages and cities and communities and nation states and tribes being led by men and women whose heart was corrupt and every intention of their heart was evil continually all the time. God sees this and in the Hebrew we are told he is pained. He has pain in his heart because he sees the corruption of man. This word pain is similar to the word toil And it's the same word that's used for Adam and for Eve. When Adam is told that you're going to keep working, but you're going to produce thorn and thistles, and it's going to be toilsome. It's going to be painful for you. And Eve is told you will have pains in childbirth. God has pain when he sees the corruption and the hurt of man and what man is capable of. Much has been said and can be said about God grieving in his heart and regretting that he has made man and saying he's going to make an end to all man. There's a lot of things that we can take away from that. But two things we know to be sure because we see the theology of scripture. One, God never changes. God never changes. He's always the same. At the same time, he has emotions. God here is grieved and he has pain. We can't relate to someone that never changes but has emotions because our emotions and other people's emotions causes them to change all the time. God never changes, yet he feels very real and timely emotions. Two things that are true at the same time but are hard for our human brains to reconcile. Let's continue the story, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We see a new covenant bearer. God had made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He had given them a commission to be fruitful and multiply, subdue, subdue the earth cultivate the things that he had given them, to create, to cultivate the land, and to be fruitful and multiply. And he said, from your offspring, a deliverer will come. Then we read what we read about Seth and how his family called on the name of the Lord. Now Noah, as Lamech prophesied by giving him the name that he would be a comfort for his people, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. He had a predisposition that God had given him towards the things of God, where he finds favor in the eyes of God, and every thought of his heart is not evil continually. So, God chooses him. Anytime you see the Bible praise someone for their righteousness, you can think covenant carrier or covenant bearer. They hold that righteousness because of a covenant God has made with them that will become even more explicit when we get to Abraham in a couple of weeks. Please look with me at Genesis 6, 11 through 7, 5. If I could borrow someone's Bible, not only did I knock over my music stand, but I left my Bible on my desk, and I want us to read this together. We're going to read this whole section because I've talked to countless people that have never read the Noah account for themselves, but they've read it in a kid's Bible or they know a song with lots of rhyming words. So I think it's important that we read this for ourselves. Genesis 6:11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth Noah did this. He did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter seven. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also male and female to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him to do. couple of observations. One, instead of every intention of Noah's heart being evil, he does what the Lord tells him to do. He does what the Lord tells him to do. He does what the Lord has commanded. He makes provision for him that is very specific. He tells him very specifically how to go about building this ark, putting the animals and his family on it to preserve and continue life for man, animal, and creation. Then in chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. This is the opposite of what God did in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God took the water and the chaos, and he brought order to it. If you read Genesis chapter 1, he took the water, he took the land, he took the night, he took the day, he took the heavens, he took the earth, and he put them in place. He takes chaos and he turns it into order. Here, he unleashes all of that and lets chaos rule. This sounds very similar to Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 with what is happening with mankind. What we see here happening is man being left to his own devices will destroy itself and the earth when left without the hand of God destroys itself as well. We see here God doing something but he's also removing something. He's removing his hand of protection that is ordering the chaos and he is bringing about the chaos of water. We read in Genesis seven that it rains and it rains and it rains for over 300 days. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, but there is water coming out of somewhere and going somewhere and the waters rise for 300 days. And if you do the math and you see how old Noah was when he went on and how old he was when he got off, they were on the boat for 11 months. That's what's going on here. Genesis chapter eight. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain in the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. But God remembered Noah. Mankind had forgotten God. God had remembered and preserved man through Noah, through the ark, through the chaos. And God makes a covenant. Genesis eight twenty. Verses 20 through 22, Genesis 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Genesis chapter 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they will be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Look also at verses 7 and 11 of Genesis chapter 9. Verses 7 through 11. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offsprings after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many has come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah, that he will never flood the earth. He makes a covenant with Noah and tells him to be fruitful and multiply. This should sound familiar to us. This is what he told Adam and Eve to do as well. And he makes a covenant with creation. He makes a covenant to not destroy creation, to watch over creation. He recommits to Noah, you take care of creation like Adam and Eve took care of creation. He makes a covenant with man. He makes a covenant with creation. One note on this idea. This may surprise you, what you're finding here, that God makes a covenant to not destroy creation and that his covenant is with creation. How many of you have played Minecraft? A little informal sociological poll. Okay, most everyone under the age of 30... A few over 30 I talked to you today have played Minecraft. Raise your hand if you know what Minecraft is. Okay, you know what it is, even if you haven't played it, because it's incredibly popular. Every kid plays it, most people are aware of it. The beauty of the game and why it's so compelling is you take raw materials and you make stuff. It looks weird, um, it's very strange. It it looks like um, technology from the Atari video game from the 1980s. It's totally pixelated, and it's these blocks, and it looks very rudimentary, but it's taking raw materials, and it's making stuff, and kids love it. My kids would play it until Jesus came back if I let them. It's so widely popular and it resonates with kids because it's what God gave us to do. Not play video games. Kids, it's not play video games. That's not the point of the story. Take raw materials and make it into stuff. Cultivate the earth. Subdue creation. Have dominion over creation with love for one another and creation and do good stuff with the things God has given you. That's what we're told to do. Cultivate the earth. Take the raw materials God has given us and provide for ourselves and others and worship him with it. But mankind and creation is broken. And so if left to its own devices, the earth often is literally trying to kill us and left to our own devices, we are literally trying to kill one another. And then we don't steward the earth as God has said we should steward the earth. And so some people don't have enough. It's a perfect illustration. It's the opposite of what God has asked his people to do. It's what we see in Genesis, but it's what we see in our world too. When We don't live according to God's covenant and God's purposes for mankind and for creation. So what do we do? What do we see in this text? Let's summarize. I'll put it up on the screen if the clicker still works after its dive off the stage. Um, what do we see? First, what do we see? Man's corruption. We're going to talk more about the three parts of this man's corruption and the three parts of the nature of sin next week. But briefly, here, we see man's corruption. Sin is not something that we accidentally do once in a while, it's the predisposition of our heart if left to ourselves. And if it was not for God's common grace, mankind would destroy itself. And in many ways, it has. Just think of the billions of people that have died at the hands of another human because of murder and bloodshed and envy and arrogance and money and hate. Sin is something that our flesh is bent towards. We are bent towards autonomy. We are bent towards deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. It goes back to the very origins What we see in Adam and Eve and what we see in Cain killing Abel and what we see in mankind living for centuries and destroying itself. Creation and those made in the image of God are to reflect his glory. We are those billions of mirrors made to reflect his glory, yet we are broken mirrors. We're in decay and chaos and rebellion against the one who made us. But amidst this corruption, we see God's mercy. We see the mercy of God. It is only when we understand the depths of the corruption, the depths of the sin in the world, and in the depths of the sin in our own hearts, that we see the depths of the mercy of God. If I back up here, I think I have a scripture from 1 Peter. We looked at this this fall. him. We see God's deliverance in the ark. The ark delivers God's people and God's creation so that life is preserved and renewed. And then he can say, be fruitful and multiply. Peter here is saying that is a picture of the mercy of God. That's God providing mercy for them, but it's a picture of the mercy God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes us through the chaos of sin and death by giving his very life for us. And we, like those people who drowned in the flood in the days of Noah, deserve nothing but death to be destroyed. That's what we deserve. But God instead pours out his mercy. And he saves us through the chaos and the mess that we have made of our own lives and that others have made of our life through their sin and their brokenness as well. The heavenly father does not tolerate his people. The heavenly father pours out his grace and mercy on us. He pours out his His mercy by withholding from us what we really deserve. He gives us his grace by giving us what we don't deserve. This is the merciful God that the Old Testament and the whole Bible is talking about. Lastly, we see the covenant keeper. The covenant keeper, we see a God who made a covenant with his people. This is from Genesis 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow is a perfect example of God's mercy for two reasons. The rainbow, is it miraculously put there by God or is it science? Yes, yes. God miraculously gives us the sign, the rainbow, and then he miraculously, out of chaos, brings order and does something that is scientifically incredible. Man, if given forever to be creative and come up with all the ideas, would never come up with a rainbow. It's too miraculous. It's too wonderful. It is incredible. It is God's doing, it is also science. The other way that it shows God's mercy is the term bow. We call it a rainbow because the rain brings it about. Hebrew calls it a bow. It's the same word for a bow, like a bow and arrow. It's a weapon. God hangs up his weapon because he says, I am done destroying the whole earth. I'm going to pour out my mercy and I'm going to recommit my covenant to my people. It is incredible that he would keep a covenant with these people. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Out of your offspring will come the deliverer and their kids kill each other. They failed. You want to talk about not discipling your kids? There was trouble in that family. We're going to see next week there's trouble in Noah's family. Right after this, he gets this covenant from God. He gets drunk and passes out in the vineyard. More next week on that. We're going to have a fun time next week. Nephilim, getting drunk in a vineyard, all kinds of things are happening next week. He hangs up his bow in the air and he says, I'm going to pour out my grace and mercy and I'm going to recommit, reconfirm, re-up the covenant I have made with these people. Not because Noah and his family were more worth it than Adam and Eve, but to say, I'm going to keep this covenant going because I am a merciful God that pours out grace and mercy on my people. The rainbow is a sign of that mercy. It is a reminder to God of the commitment he has made to us and is a reminder of his grace and his mercy. Old Testament Professor and scholar Walter Brueggemann says, the only thing that the waters of chaos cannot break through is the commitment of God to his people. Water destroyed everything in the great flood, but they can't break through the commitment, the promises, the power, the provision of God. The one who spoke and created all things, the one who commanded the waters to stop, And put the water where they're supposed to go, and then called them to bring about the chaos, and then sent the chaos back where it came from. That same God is with us. He is speaking now, His Spirit is doing the work, and through that offspring that was promised, Jesus, we can now be people of grace and mercy. What an amazing covenant! That he has made with his people, and he is the covenant keeper. And it's really important that we have a covenant keeper that is outside of ourselves because we keep breaking the covenant. And yet he is faithful to the covenant. In this song, Just as Good, we just sang, I will build an altar, I will stack it stone by stone because every Ebenezer says, I have never been alone. We are God's people. The New Testament calls us a spiritual house being built up into the temple of God, the people of God, the church of God, the body of God. We are being built up and we are those stones that say, these are my people. I've delivered these people. I've kept my covenant with these people and our lives show we have never been alone. God, out of his grace and mercy, is giving you the breath that you are breathing right now. He has kept you from the chaos in your own heart. He has kept you from the chaos that we find in our world. And he is doing a work in you and through you. And he has work for you to do. To take the opportunities and the things that he has made and cultivate them and use them to bring glory to him and bring about more good and more blessing in our world. That's what God has called us to. Our lives are an altar to the faithfulness of the Lord. And this is good news because you have stumbled and fallen. I have stumbled and fallen. You've gotten off track of the commissioning that God has on your life. Even in our own families, we have received hurt and suffering But none of this negates or takes anything away from God's covenant and commitment to you and his purposes. Because of what Christ has done for you, because of his spirit living in you, living in the church, you have literally never been alone. No matter what you have gone through, no matter what you are going through now, whatever you will go through in the future, you don't go through it alone. God's grace and mercy is with you. Would you stand with me? We're gonna end on our feet because we're prepared to serve the Lord, we're prepared to obey him, and we're prepared to be his good news people. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would show each one of us the depths of our own sin and flesh and the chaos that is in our own heart and world. God, I pray that we would be very aware and very honest about who we are, where we've come from, the things that we have done. And then God, I pray through your spirit, word, and people, you would show us the depths of your grace and mercy in light of our sin. God, there is chaos in our heart, there is chaos in our land, there is chaos in our world. And we need your grace and mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the price that you paid. Jesus, thank you for living the righteous life that we never could. Jesus, when every intention of our heart was evil continually, Jesus, you always did the will of the Father. Jesus, you were the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, you were the spotless lamb that came to take away the sins of the whole world. We rejoice in your grace. We rejoice in your mercy. We rejoice in your provision. God, we pray that as we dine together tonight, we would share fellowship with one another as we break bread together. God, we pray that we would show the love that you have given us. God, we pray that we would also show that love and that good news to people outside of these church walls, outside of the church family, as we be your good news people this week. God, thank you for the hands that have prepared this food. We pray that you would use that food to give us strength, and we would use that strength to honor and worship you.